Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we, just, we thank you for this time that we can come. We can worship you. We can see the results of new life in you through baptism. And God, we just look forward to the chance to, again, just to bring our tough questions to you, to wrestle with you, for we know that you want us to do that. You encourage us to bring our doubts directly to you when we have them. And God, we want to do that this morning. I pray that the words that I might speak may be straight from you, from your scripture, that they may be truth, uh, that we would listen with open hearts. For it's your name we, we pray. Amen. So when I was a teenager, uh, my uncle informed us that they were expecting their first child, and um, everybody was excited, and it turned out that they were going to have their first child who was going to have a lot of problems. In fact, they were given very poor prognosis that they would probably not make it very long at all because of a heart defect. And as a fairly young Christian at the time, this was back in the 80s, um, I remember intently praying in my bed when we, you know, it got down to the point where he would be born and we knew it would be sort of touch and go for the first 48 hours or so. And I was just really praying that God would work a miracle in his life and to heal him, to just heal him from this heart defect. So uh, he was born, did have a lot of problems. It was sort of rough for a while and uh, lived a little over a year and actually did pretty well, but eventually died. But during that time, I began to sort of wrestle as a new Christian. What does it mean in the context of the miracles that we have in the Bible. When you hear about miracles, I was very intrigued about that. And how do we approach miracles in our own life? Whether that's some small things, Robert mentioned I run less than I used to, slower than I used to. But I do run in Mississippi, which those of you who have experienced this know how hot it can be and how intolerable it can be at times. And even for praying for small things like, Lord, the forecast is for 110 degrees today. Perhaps you could give me a breeze and then having that. That's a miracle in my, in my book. Um, or if it's, you know, just those simple things that we all pray for over and over again. What this is not are some of those trivial things that we attribute to miracles, right? Like it was a miracle that you completed your homework. Like that was just incredible. I'm not looking at anybody one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. But, um, but this is really about something that, that I think is very important to our understanding about God and how he interacts with our lives and his purposes in our lives. So hopefully this is helpful to you today. A lot of what I will say comes either directly or indirectly from reading this book, C.S. Lewis Miracles. So I've had this since 96, I think, um, and was great to pull that back out and sort of go back through that um, and think about that. Um, so, courageous questions, are miracles real? The first question that we have to ask is, do miracles exist? That seems like a basic question. Seems like the question, right? Well, it's not as simple as you would think. And I'm not here today to tell you that I'm going to set it up so that I'm going to have a formal proof that leads you to a point where you can believe in miracles. Because I don't think I can do that. I don't think anybody can do that because it's much more complex in answering this first question. Do miracles exist? First of all, we have to have a definition though, right? 
So there's many definitions out there. I love this one from C.S. Lewis, again, from his book. Uh, A miracle is anything that interferes with nature that is caused by supernatural power. If you Google a definition of miracles, you'll find something similar. Something that supersedes the natural occurrences of things, nature, attributable to a supernatural power. Usually it's something that is good and expected or unexpected but good that happens, but it is attributable to something outside of nature. So that's our our definition. It's not, you know, what's been in popular culture sometimes. All I need is a miracle. All I need is you or anything like that. That's a tribute to Robert. He usually brings in a song that only about two people in the audience would uh, (laughs) understand. Uh, so, so it is a big something. It can be toward one individual. It can be something that is objectively seen, but it's also something that can be experienced. So that's our definition. So in that definition, we have to think about the nature of things versus, versus something external or the supernatural, okay? So by nature, if you think about that, it's everything that's set into place by God. Everything that involves how things work and the normal way of things, that we have light and darkness, that the earth rotates on its axis every day, that it goes around the sun, that we have the laws of physics, we have all the natural things and occurrences that happen for life to go on, and they go on in an orderly and repetitive fashion. But there's also something else to this, right? So there's something external, I totally believe that's God. That's one thing that's not some cosmic force or forces that intervene on that, that God ultimately is in control of those things, and he intentionally intervenes to do something about it. So if he does something about the natural order of things, which he has created too, and he supersedes that in some ways, he does some things to change that, then we have to think about what does that look like? So the next thing is, is this an invasion by God into the natural world or is it subjectivity? Here's what I mean by that. Let's look at a couple of verses here. So the first is from Genesis 1-7. So the snippet of creation, right? So God made the expanse. He separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. So here's God, and this is one aspect of how he deals with water. So thought this would be good for us to think and talk about. Think about water and its uses. I just had some water before I came up here. I am mostly a bag of water, right? We all are. Water is intrinsic to all the things that happen in our world. You can't have, we can't have life without water. But then we can use water. We can even use water as a tool. How many of you have pressure washed your house or something in the last couple of weeks? That's using the force of water to do something. We can do some things with water. Robert mentioned a kayak. I love that. What's underneath the water, fishing, all those kinds of things. Water is pleasurable in the way that we interact with it. It is the thing that gives us life. So that is the nature part of it, right? So that's the thing that God has made and set into motion, not just water being a substance, but how it works and interacts, that it has three different phases, that it can do certain things under different situations, external situations. This is from Luke 8, 
one day Jesus, he, he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed on the water, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and they were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? So things that they were intimately used to, that on this lake, they knew what they were doing, right? They knew how to sail a boat. That was their livelihood, and their lives depended upon it. They used everything in that they knew of to try to stay afloat on this lake, but the winds were blowing against them. The water was coming on board. So now this displacement of the water by the boat is failing because of the water that's now getting in the boat. Natural law. And what happens? Jesus wakes up or is woken by them and they plead with him to do something and he intervenes into these natural occurrences of what should happen, which is they should have sank at that point. And the winds cease, the water cease, and everything becomes calm. And their response is, who is this that he commands even the winds and the waters? So back to those two questions, like nature versus subjectivity, or invasion versus subjectivity. So does God just intervene in a way that looks like an invasion? This may seem like a subtle point, or is it more that he actually controls that? He set into motion all these laws and the way that things work, but he can also deviate from that and change that at will because he is in charge of it anyway. I think that's an important point as we see miracles in our life, that it's not just something that he has to pry himself into, but he has control over all of it, both the natural way and the supernatural way. Well, what about defining this question, do miracles exist? Can we, you know, a lot of people will just say, well, if I just see one or I experience one, then I'll believe. Sort of the Thomas approach, right? Touch, touch the scars, see the scars, then I'll believe that. So is seeing believing. Well, it's not always. Let's think about that. Every time you interact, somebody interacts with a miracle, whether that it's something that you experience yourself or you see experience, we do it through our senses, through our five senses. Every, every miracle is experienced that way. So the question is, can we trust our five senses every time to solidify this question, are miracles real? Well, think about that. If you hear a noise that sounds like an alarm, it may actually be something else, right? You may actually have a peacock outside your window that sounds like an alarm. If you smell something that smells like a fire burning, it may be somebody who's cooking something really good, maybe. If you see some things sometimes, it's not what you would normally see. So we can't trust our senses all the time. In fact, let's put this picture up there and you tell me what's happening. So is this car driving across this road and the road has suddenly been flooded by water? Is the car driving off the end of the event horizon and going up into the atmosphere? What's happening here? What is this? Mirage. Yeah, this is a mirage. So this is part of the natural order of things that is producing something that our eyes, our vision interprets as something that it's not. 
the car still on the road, but what we're seeing is the refraction of light by the heat that actually is giving us an image of the sky lower than the horizon, right? That's what a mirage is. So it's, it's a bending of that light through different processes. Interesting enough, it doesn't have to be below the horizon. It can be above the horizon too, which is really cool. But just an aside, I just think it's cool. So we can't always trust what we see or we experience if we're using that as the only definition of a miracle happening, right? Particularly if it's somebody else, we can explain that away by our senses maybe didn't interpret that in the same kind of way, right? What about historical authenticity? Okay, so some people would say, okay, if we historically, if we can say that something happened, then we can prove it, whether it was a miracle or not. Well, that has some flaws too. So then you're really what you're talking about is the laws of probability. So you can have something that an event that you can choose anything, the healing of the blind person. Let's just take that as an example. You can say, what's the possibility of that happening? Is it impossible? Then it has to be a miracle. Or maybe it's possible, but it's not really probable. Less chance. That's sort of how we do in science, how we think, uh, look at things in science, right? So we can say, well, maybe there's a 5% chance that that happened. Um, so that's plausible unlikely, but it could happen. And then you're sort of up in the air, or maybe it's not improbable. And how can this happen? If it happens frequently over time, that really doesn't fit our definition of a miracle anyway. Like if everybody is always healed of being blind every time, that's nature. That's not something supernatural. Okay. Just something to think about, about the historical authenticity, just because something happens and you can prove it in history by probability doesn't mean that you can apply that to your definition. So what about science? Let's just get it. Let's get into that. So what about science? So, you know, science is all about observing something that's happening, developing a hypothesis, and then through empiric experimentation, you try to recreate things that happen so that you can explain how it happened. Science is never designed, nor is it empowered to tell us the ultimate questions of why, right? But it can describe how the natural world works. And it's important to note that it's not just one time, despite what is commonly touted by a lot of people are like, well, this worked. I tried this and it worked. Well, science would say, well, it worked this one time, or it looked like it worked. We have to repeat that. And if we repeat it multiple times enough to, to prove that, then we say, okay, we've proven that this is the way that that worked. Well, by the very nature of miracles, it doesn't really lend itself to science, does it? Because, again, it's something that's separate from what the natural way of things would work. So these are all kinds of fallacies about that. Like how we define do miracles exist, that question, how we answer that question is really dependent upon the philosophical things that we bring to that. If we're saying that we believe in nature, the way things work, and a supernatural, which that's the problem that, most, that a lot of people have with it, then when you have that intersection of those two things, I really have to think about that philosophically and spiritually to answer that question. So it's not all about science. It's not all about seeing as believing. It's not about historical authenticity. It's really more of what I'm bringing to that experience. Second question, 
Why do miracles exist? My favorite question to ask is why. I love the question why because it, it's, it's behind everything else, right? It's what drives things. How is important too. It's, I, I love knowing how things work, but the why is very important. So if we have miracles, so if our supposition is, yes, miracles do exist both historically and today, what is their purpose? Why do they exist? Okay, so there's several different things. One is miracles exist to get our attention. And uh, this, is, this is not exhaustive. I, I don't ever presume to know every reason why miracles exist. I'm sure they're much more than we're going to look at today. But here's one of them. Miracles exist to get your attention. I don't know about you, but uh, maybe your, your, um, your experience, your, your faith with the Lord is one in which you're always listening to him and you're always attentive to what he wants you to see and to do, mine is not. And he has to get my attention at times. And I suspect that's the way for all of us. And sometimes that's in subtle ways, and sometimes that's in very dramatic ways. So let's look at a passage where this might be true. This is from Exodus 4. So this is God sending out Moses to the Egyptians. To Pharaoh, And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all of the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. A little discouraging there at the end, isn't it? So who is, my question is, who is Moses at this point? So is Moses the de facto leader of somewhere between 250,000 to a million people who were enslaved by the most powerful nation on the earth at that time? No, he is not the leader of those people. Who is he? What is his condition and state right now? He's a wanted criminal for murder who has been largely forgotten for 40 years by the Egyptians, thankfully for his sake. He's a shepherd who's working for his father-in-law tending sheep when God says, I want you to be the leader that takes these people out of Egypt. And you're going to talk directly to Pharaoh. That's a pretty big ask, right? So God gives him these things. This is the proof that I am sending you. He gives it first to Moses. And now he tells Moses, see that you do all these things before Pharaoh when I send you there. So it's to get his attention, right? The hardening of the heart portion is just so that God can drive it home. If, it, if he had performed those miracles right off the bat and Pharaoh would have said, all right, leave. Think of all the impact that would have not have been there if he hadn't gone through all 10 plagues parting of the Red Sea, and everything else. Like God is really trying to tell a story here of himself, and we'll see that in a little bit. So he's getting their attention through miracles. The second thing is miracles exist to accomplish God's purpose or purposes. Now, these can be pretty complex, and we don't always know those. It's just like reading a scripture and saying, what's the, what is the... Uh, what's the purpose of that scripture? What's the purpose of that, of that story, that historical event in the Gospels, for instance? We don't always know, and it can still mean different things to all of us, right, in the way that the Holy Spirit uses that. But God uses miracles for different purposes. This is a little bit longer. It involves a couple of different things, but I think it will illustrate a point. So let's go to our next verse. This is from Luke chapter 8. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. For they were all waiting for him, and there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. 
As Jesus went, the people pressed upon him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who is it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Don't weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Long story, a couple of different things in here. Jesus is asked to basically perform a miracle. Jairus, your, your daughter's sick. Ask the teacher. He goes and asks. It's a ways to get there. As he is going, uh, there's tons of people that are following him, right? So they're pressing in on him. And this woman knows something about Jesus, that he can perform miracles, that he has power, and she has faith that if she just touches him, that she'll be healed. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus knows it. Peter tries to joke around with him a little bit and says, there's tons of people here. How can you know that somebody touched you? What do you mean? Everybody's touching you, Jesus. So he's, no, 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 no. We've got to find this one person. So he's still on the way to Jairus' house. So she's healed of what she couldn't be healed of using the natural way at the time with doctors. It says, and Luke is writing this too, he's like all these doctors have tried to do this, right? So they go to Jairus' house. The girl has died. He raises her back to life. And he has a small crowd there. He tells them, don't tell anybody, right? which is really mysterious at times in Jesus' ministry. So what's the purpose of this? Well, a woman got healed who had been that way a long time and didn't really have any other way. And by the way, that condition made her unable to participate in Jewish society because she was unclean, ceremonially unclean. So he heals her of that. Jairus' daughter, obviously, she's the only child. She's loved. She's raised back from the dead. But I didn't put up what happens next, which is that Jesus has been teaching in Galilee. He's gone to the area of the Gerasenes. He's healed a demon-possessed man. And who is seeing all this? Sometimes it's the crowds, but mainly it's his disciples. The very next verse says that he sent them out to do what? To preach and to perform miracles. This is training, too. You see God's purposes in this? It's not just for one person. We think that miracles are just for me, for us, for that individual, one individual person. And that's true. But they have other purposes in God's story, other purposes that he is doing, and he has ultimate ways that he's looking at that. We, we can see plenty of miracles today, right, in this, in this body. We know that. And one of the reasons why, you know, from the first we've said we need to tell our stories here because those stories 
tell of how God is working in our lives in sometimes very miraculous ways. Matthew McAlpin was sitting right down here. If you don't know that story, ask somebody. That's, a mir- that's multiple miracles in and of, of itself. Those stories are there, but God has multiple purposes in those. So miracles exist to accomplish his purposes, and there are many in that. Miracles also exist to lead us to faith. And this is, we're getting a lot deeper into the purposes here. So let's look at a verse here. Uh, Matthew 14, so they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost because it's a natural process. Nobody can walk on water. Ergo, it must be a ghost that does this. They know about nature. A lot of times we say, well, these were like uneducated people. They didn't really know about all that. I bet they knew tons more than any of us in here about sailing on a lake. Maybe you're a sailor and I've just offended you. I apologize. They said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart as I do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat. He walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you're the Son of God. Miracles exist to lead us to faith, not in the miracle itself. You may misunderstand here, like Peter saw what was happening. He knew Jesus was away from them. It's very clear. Matthew tells us very clear what happened. Jesus wasn't just like hiding in the boat and just got out on the water a little bit. He was a long way off. He walked to them on the water. Their waves were again, pressing against him, and the wind was pressing against the boat. Peter, by faith, recognizes not so much the miracle itself, but who it is doing this, Jesus. And he basically asks, if it's really you, let me do the same thing you're doing. Let me be part of this supernatural subjectivity of the natural world. And Jesus says, yes, come walk with me. Peter gets distracted. He falls down in the water. Don't miss this, too. It's just as important for Peter's faith to sink, I think, because how, if you look at, if you think about everything else Peter experiences in his life, what would have happened if Peter just walked on water and came back to the boat? If it were me, I'd be telling everybody about how I walked on water, right? Peter sank. And the bigger part of faith is that Jesus, the bigger miracle is that he's right there and he reaches down and he pulls him out. And by the way, you don't have to have a whole lot of faith. Remember he says, oh, you have little faith, Right? So it's steps of faith. But this is how God leads us to faith sometimes through the miracles in our life. If we don't have greater faith in him, toward him, then we've missed the point of the miracle, as a lot of people do, and a lot of people did. It's easy to do that if all you're waiting for is the miracle and not the miracle worker. So um, next point. Miracles exist to reveal the nature of God. 
multiple verses here. You can look it up later, but basically to quickly summarize, creation, okay, you can say, well, that wasn't a miracle. That was part of the natural world. That's fine, I think, because it's setting up all the different ways in the future that God is going to intervene on that as a supernatural power and do things that are contrary to the natural order of things, right? So, He created everything. The Exodus, he's taken his people out of slavery of Egypt in miraculous ways through plagues and through the crossing of the Red Sea. He provides provision of them for them in Exodus 16.35 through manna and quail and water uh, in the desert so that they might uh, be with him and know more about him. The prophecies of Jesus, either historical events about where he'll be born or the things that would happen in his life, the emotional life of Jesus in the Psalms, the very things that he says from the cross and how he feels in Psalm 22 and 69, all of the other prophecies in the Old Testament that speak to what will happen and did happen in such exact language. The virgin birth of Jesus coming down and being born to a virgin so that he could become one of us, the Emmanuel. The healing of the blind, multiple times, I just listed two up there. Feeding of the people, we already saw that in Matthew 14. And finally, the resurrection. What does this teach us about the nature of God? That he's a creator, that he puts everything in motion in ordered ways, that he loves us so much that he wants to do in not just a simple way, but in very very profound, miraculous ways to show how he will, what links he'll go to to rescue us from our sin, our slavery to sin, and to be with us and provide for us provision, not just in a happy land of bliss where we can say, okay, now we're saved and nothing bad is going to happen to us. This is a prototype of that, that he took care of them in the wilderness, right? So that they could know him better. All the prophecies, because you know what? He's got a plan that we don't, (laughs) we barely can follow sometimes, but he has a definite plan. The virgin birth, as it says in Ephesians, that he humbled himself, he emptied himself in the Greek of everything that was divine about him and became a baby, not just a baby, but one single cell. Think about that. He took all of the divinity, was in one single cell that became a person. What's that like? This is teaching us about the love of God, of what he will go to to be the the king of the universe and the ruler of the universe to come down into one, start with one single cell. That's a lot. Healing of the blind, why? Because he is the light of the world. He is ultimate truth if we'll see it. And he can open blind eyes that have been blind for all of your life. He can feed you not just with bread that you eat, but he is the, the manna from heaven that saves us, that fills us. And then finally, the resurrection. What hope do we have without the resurrection, as Paul would say? We are to be pitied among all people if that's not true. What is he doing with miracles? He's teaching us about himself. Final question, what is our response? So there's basically two responses, and the first is doubt. You can doubt that miracles exist, that they ever existed. Oh, those people, they just changed things. They manipulated the text. They made up stories to try to, to force things to happen in certain ways or the claims that people had. That's a lot of faith in that, even though you're doubting. But you can doubt. In fact, you can see miracles in doubt. Look at this uh, scripture again from John 12. 
While you have the light, believe in the light. This is Jesus speaking, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from him. Though he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Right there, right? And Mark 8, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign, that's a miracle, from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. He left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. That's pretty sad. But you can doubt, or you can respond with faith. And again, faith is not faith in the miracle, but faith in who's behind it. Let's look at this passage again from Matthew 14. Peter answered to him, Lord, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got up out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. He saw the wind. He sank down. Jesus lifted him back up. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And they got back in the boat and they worshipped him. Incidentally, this is the first time that the disciples worship him. They recognize that he's the Messiah. This is the first time they worship him as God because it's so close to the things that they had. They knew people that had died on this lake. They knew what storms like this were like. Miracles exist to lead us to faith. Next, next verse. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Isn't that wonderful? You may be asking for miracles to happen, and that's great. I think you should. I do. I pray for things, and some of them have happened, and some of them I'm waiting. Because he is the Lord of our life, right? He is able to do that. He is the supernatural power that not only put those laws into motion, but he can supersede those at any time under his subjectivity because he's in control over all of it. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. As our worship team comes up, I want to... I want you to think about this. Miracles may come and go in your life or in others' lives. I don't think they should be ignored. As a scientist, as a physician for 30 years, I've certainly seen those in my own patients and the people that I've been around. If you're not seeing them, please look. But look, don't look with such objectivity that's dismissing everything. Look with faith. Not so much in the miracle itself, although it'll tell you about who is performing it but the miracle that leads you to the one who is the miracle worker that we sang about earlier. Let's pray. Father, you are miraculous in how you interact with us. You show us again and again the nature of yourself through not only the created world, but how you supersede that and how you did that historically in coming down and humbling yourself and emptying yourself of your divine nature to become a child who walked among us, who grew, who sacrificed yourself for us because of your love for us, who glorified your Father in heaven by doing everything that you did and continue to glorify him. And God, all these miracles that we read about and all the ones that we hear about today, Lord, thank you that it's okay to doubt. When you spoke to your own disciples, you didn't so much chastise them for not having their faith. It was a little faith. It was a little bit. Help us to have more faith, Lord. 
And God, just as we've seen evidence of this miracle this morning through baptism, I pray that there's any here that need to put their faith in you, that they would do so. God, I pray that they would see you as the author and perfecter of our lives through your divine purposes. God, thank you for your word that speaks so clearly of who you are.